Welcome to the Secret Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and before we begin, I wanted to give you a message from the future. I'm recording this in 2022. That's five years after we released this episode with Nick Jenkins, which was our first ever. A lot's changed since 2017. The UK's left the EU, we've had a pandemic, and are now in a very different economic situation. And the podcast has also changed. When we recorded this interview with Nick, we honestly didn't know what we were doing. But me and my co-founder Rich wanted to learn from great entrepreneurs. So we followed a classic bit of startup advice you'll hear in Secret Leaders. Just get started. Get something out there and see what people think. We were pretty scrappy at the beginning. You can hear that in the sound of this episode, but we've been continuously improving the show and hundreds of thousands of people have enjoyed what we've made since. I hope you do too. And wanted to take this opportunity to point you to some of my favourite episodes. Charles Tirrett, Just Eat, Joe Malone, Huel, Slack, Alan de Botton, Atomic Habits, Desiem, Trini Woodall, My Protein, Eve Sleep, Med Men, Masterclass and Duolingo. There's loads, but they're my favourites. I put links to the episodes in the show notes so you can head there whenever you want. Now, back in the time machine and onto the show, which taught me some very important things about building a business myself. Hello and welcome to episode one, series one of our new podcast, The Secret Lives of Leaders. I'm your host, Daniel Murray, and this is our producer, Rich Martel. Rich, can you let our listeners know what they can expect to hear this series and most importantly, from who? Hello, Dan. Hello, listeners. We're very excited to share our guests and amazing insights throughout the series. Um, Generally, the structure we've gone for is to pick amazing leaders in entrepreneurship uh, around the UK and ask them to tell us their story behind their brands and personal triumphs and failures, uh, along with any lessons and advice they have got to give along the way. Right. And we've been pretty blessed to have some amazing guests along the series, haven't we? So uh, can you just give us some insights into who our listeners can look forward to? Sure. Today, we've got Nick Jenkins, the founder of Moonpig. I'm sure you've all heard of that brand. And he's also now on Dragon's Den as one of the dragons. Uh, We've also decided as a little present, um, first of all, to release three other podcasts at the same time. So you can get stuck right in and listen to all of those in one go, if you fancy. Um, So we've also got Uh, The one and only Alice Bentink, co-founder of Entrepreneur First, one of the UK's leading startup incubators. Um, Thirdly, we've got Graham Hobson, co-founder of Photobox, which is a huge company now, and he helped grow that to become valued over 400 million. Nicest man in the world. Very nice man, very nice man. And finally today, we managed to wangle an invite to Buckingham Palace itself to sit down with it's Royal Highness Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, who started a huge pitch event called Pitcher Palace. And obviously we're going to say he's a lovely guy, right? Because we want to go yeah, back course. to Buckingham Palace as often as we can. So that's the first lot. And we'll be releasing a new podcast uh, every week until we run out of guests. The idea for this podcast series came from a mix between Dan's live fireside chats and a podcast that I was doing before uh, that. Um, so we decided to collaborate and this show is the outcome. Episodes were recorded, what do we do, over the course of about six, six months, months yeah. And we're hoping to do a few series of this. So let us know what you think, and we're always open to suggestions. You can get in touch with us through the details in the description of the podcast. Um, I think it's fair to start going and uh, bringing in someone that we both admire, who fundamentally people can learn a lot more from than they can to us chatting. Let's do it. From Runway East Studios in London, welcome to the Secret Lives of Leaders. 
today's guest is the man behind one of the most catchy jingles of the last few years. But don't worry, it's not Go Compare. Described by friends as energetic, a forward thinker, and hugely innovative, he's a man who's always had an entrepreneurial streak. But it wasn't until after eight years in finance he decided he wanted to go back to university to study for an MBA. Having saved up enough money to be his own seed investor, he started the online greeting card company Moonpig in the year 2000, right at the time that dot-com companies all around him were collapsing. Sixteen years later, Moonpig has grown to be an enormous success, not without challenges along the way, of course, but it was eventually acquired by Photobox in 2011 for a reported £120 million. So, without further ado, welcome Nick Jenkins. Hello. So, uh, starting off with the early days, um, you've got a very entrepreneurial background, and seeing as you're always starting your own businesses from your teams, where do you actually think that came from? Is there sort of a familial influence there, or can you take us through like the really early days? Uh, not, not particularly. My 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 father had a very corporate career. Um, my grandmother was relatively entrepreneurial, which was unusual for a woman of of that era. Um, but what, um, what era are we talking? Well, she was born in 1901. Oh wow! Okay. So yeah, so she was she was quite unusual. Um, I, I don't know where it comes from, other than that. But um, but it was always quite um, uh, quite a strong instinct. So we read somewhere that you were training to go into the army, but instead ended up in finance. How did how did that part happen? Oh well, I, I'd been sponsored through university by the army, and I, the idea was that I would go and spend uh, uh, three years at four, four years at university reading Russian, and then spend a few years um, in the in the army. And you're fluent in Russian still? Well, I, well, I am because I ended up um, getting offered a job in Russia, uh, which I did instead. I took instead of going to Sandhurst, and went off to to Russia for, and spent eight years there. In fact, I never really intended to move there. I went. I accepted a job which was based in London, and I went on a business trip and, and never actually really came back. Did um, you Did you never actually spend any time in Sandhurst then? No, I didn't spend any time in Sandhurst. No, I had a place at Sandhurst, so they sponsored. I had to do a, a course at Catterick um, before university, which was a, a sort of fairly brutal, being beasted around the countryside type of course. And um, and then I had a place at Sandhurst for the uh, I think September uh, in. The year I graduated was due to graduate, and about two months before, I just uh, I got offered a much better opportunity. How did you, how did you get offered that opportunity though? Because I mean, did someone just suddenly randomly find it? There was no LinkedIn in those it, days. It was, so- was a random thing. I was I was actually I was actually selling um, uh, some of the shirts that I'd got for the shirt business um, at. Um, which we'll at, come at, on to. Which we'll come on to at, at, a, at a ball in London. Are you wearing and a shirt that you made today? Uh, no, I'm not. No, no, they've all long since uh, long since gone. You're finally but, buying your own shirts. Uh, so, um, I, I was I was at a, a running a stall, and someone's I was chatting to to a friend who who then found out that I was doing Russian and said, "Oh well, I've got this friend of mine who needs a Russian speaker to go out and go and run the run a Moscow office. You must meet him." So I went for a, a job interview with this company, and it was at a the Duxfield Air Show uh, um, airfield, and and a Spitfire landed and this guy gets out of a spitfire in a flying jacket wanders over and says hi i'm nick he was also called nick and and we anyway we had this sort of bizarre interview standing next to a spitfire and i thought this this sounds extraordinary um and that was it can the army went off to the, so i worked with him for a year and then i got headhunted to buy a come mark rich which became glencore the commodity trader um you actually but, got um headhunted by mark rich at the time yeah yeah wow yeah. Um, so, um, so even longer story then. Uh, that's yes, yes. So that, and then, then I. Well, you see, what had happened was that I'd had the shirt business at university, which had actually failed, and it had failed because um, uh, because 
I didn't do any market research about neck size, and I was asked what size neck, what sizes I want these shirts made in, and ordered a whole load of them in 15, 16, 15 and a half, and a whole load in size 14 inch neck. Nobody, nobody has a size 14 inch neck. Um, so as a result, I had a whole load of unsold stock, and that basically wiped out any profit I was going to make. So you could really, have potentially been dressing ostriches. Um, they that, must, they yeah, must, they or, must fit or, into or, them. Or pygmies with a predilection for a formal <laughs> dressing, but it was. Um, uh, so, so, so I, I had to go and get a proper job at that point, and, and I'd always planned to go. I, I, I don't know that I really had a plan actually, but I was going to go into the army and then come out. I think actually the plan was go into the army, come out, and become a, a, a become a barrister. So actually, the 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 entrepreneurial interlude at university was a, was a bit of a blip. But anyway, then I, then I went off went off to Russia, and I sort of became a bit of an entrepreneur in the sense that I was working for for Mark Rich. Um, but created a Russian company over there for them, hired people, and it was a bit like a startup environment, but unfortunately funded by somebody else. Um, and I did that for eight years. So we actually got in touch with your, your friend, uh, Greg Knott, mm. um, and we asked him uh, to sort of uh, describe some, some Nick Jenkins facts for us, and uh, just, just in his own words. So I thought I'd share these with you. So he said, we met at Birmingham University where we shared a Victorian vicarage. Uh, that in itself is uh, an unusual way to start anything, but let's carry on. Nick undertook a restoration program with some help, but he spearheaded it, of the house, which ended up salmon pink predominantly with beautifully restored shutters. <laughs> I'm actually seeing a pattern because having been to your house, I can see you now actually love restoring <laughs> monster houses. True. Okay, mm. so this is... Uh, also the second time I met you and now the second reference we had <laughs> with this. Okay, we used to play the vicar squash for the rent. The what? Th- can you explain that? I'm going to just stop. Well, there. No, what happened was we had to we basically had to lose well, the, because the vicar was in charge of the house. Right, it was a sort of a, it was a curate's house, um, and it was it was very nice. Um, but uh, we had a, a, a vicar who loved playing squash, but hated losing. Um, so so we whoops butterfingers. Oh dear it. Oh well done, well done, <laughs> Reverend. That's marvelous, um, and um, that kept him happy. So what you're saying? No, is- we had to pay the rent. The rent was thirty quid a week, I think. Okay, yes, but yes. so, but regardless whether you won or lost, you still had to pay the rent. Oh, still had to pay the rent. Yes, oh, okay, that's right. yes, okay. Yes, yes. So, so it seems like you re- you remember this no. a bit more vividly than Greg, potentially, <laughs> or whatever you told him at the time. So it was while at university that Nick and I set up Jen- Jenkins and Not shirts. They were made in Cyprus to order. Nick liked to quip that we were we ran a strict one size fits all policy, which actually explains a little bit about what you discussed on the <laughs> next here. This might explain why you had so many labels left over at the end of the exercise. Nick is energetic, forward-thinking, a strategist, innovative, unlikely to let detail get in the way of execution of a plan. A good man with a short attention span. Very generous, comfortable thinking on his feet and living by wit. Happy to be contrarian, can be absent-minded. I first knew him when I was 18 and I've always been good. he's always been good value and great company. Showed entrepreneurship since the day I met him. And I've never thought of Nick as secretive. He is a sharer, not a hoarder of information. So have you always had a very open approach? Have you always shared everything you're doing with people whilst you were growing up? What, like fa- friends, family, lessons? Is it that kind of attitude? I, I it's think not very so. British, so. basically. No, but it does, it does lead to a lot more collaboration, openness and honesty, and also an understanding that, that deals, you know, deals have to work for both sides. Um, and you, I realised very early on in, in, in business that, uh, if people essentially trust you, you can get things done much, much quicker. If people are having to count their fingers every time they shake your hand, um, it it sets things back. Everyone gets terribly legalistic, and um, so so I've never thought it's particularly smart to be considered to be ruthless. Um, 
uh, I think actually being considered to be fair in business mm. is um, uh, gets gets a bit more people want to work with you. Yep, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Okay, so you've had a lot going on outside of uni whilst you were studying. So are you particularly academic? No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not very good at studying because I get distracted. So uh, I, I, I get asked one question and I will answer another question, which I find more interesting, but that never really helped very much with results. Um, so um, I loved it and I did love the, I loved the, the intellectual side of university, but, uh, but I just wasn't terribly good at following instructions. So that's quite an interesting thing just to pick up on there. So you say that you don't have, um, you know, focus on one thing and yet you ran the same business for a long period of time with, you know, a great determination on that sole venture. That's quite at odds with, you know, a lot of a lot of the zeitgeist for entrepreneurs right now is, of course, you do multiple startups. And, you know, you lead towards an exit as fast as you can, whatever size that might be. And you go on to the next thing because at the end of the day, you're distracted and you have that kind of attitude. So this is interesting because it well, seems like your business is different to what, how you describe yourself. No, 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 that was just necessity in the sense that once I'd started Moonpig and I'd invested a lot of my own money, um, there was no option other than to right. plow on until this thing worked. Um, so, so actually, it was more about um, that gave me a lot of focus. I mean, there's nothing to focus you like the fact that you've invested every penny of all of the money that you made in your entire career mm. um, and more, um, and you need to make that work. Yep, that's very so, fair. So, whereas I find now, uh, now that I don't necessarily need to to uh, to make, I, I don't need the money. I don't need these businesses to work in the same way. I am more distracted and flit from one project to another. So, And what do you uh, tend to find you enjoy more? Do you, do you enjoy this? Is this better suited to your personality? Do you find yourself freer and more sort of um, at, at ease with your lifestyle now, regardless of obviously success? I think a, port, a portfolio thing is, is, is interesting and it gives you the ability to be able to dip in, dip in and out of things. Um, you've always got to be very, very careful of not having too many plates spinning at the same time. Um, so I definitely, I definitely prefer that. But there is nothing quite like needing a business to work. And, and a lot of that also depends on whether or not you've actually put all of your own money into it. And, and as an investor now, when I look at businesses and I'm investing in someone, I want to understand I'm more willing to commit money to a business if I think that the founder is absolutely financially committed and needs that business to work. Yeah. Um, if someone comes to me and they've got three businesses and they want me to invest in one of them, well, if the if the business I've invested in suddenly becomes less interesting, he'll just switch his focus to the other two, um, or another one of them, um, and I've just lost all my money. So, so that that focus of an entrepreneur is quite important. Okay, so going back to focus, um, so you went back for more after your stint in finance. So again, there's a lot of um, it's interesting the things that you say or the way you describe yourself sometimes are odds with your actual story. So, for example, your focus um, and not being so good at academia. You went back to do an MBA. Uh, yes, I, uh, I I I went into it with the assumption that I would probably come in the bottom quartile, results-wise, but I'd probably be one of the only people that actually set up a business. Yeah, and and that actually turned out to be true. I did indeed come in the bottom quartile, um, uh, but but I was one of the few people who set up a business. Yeah, uh, yeah, I didn't really, not so much for the qualification. Um, and I have to say, I found it extremely painful. Um, after having been very proactive, sitting in a lecture, listening to someone drone on for 45 minutes, um, I found really quite painful. Um, but it was quite, I, I used it really as an opportunity to, to, learn, to get enough to bluff in, in most subjects. Because having been a commodity trader, um, I was involved in certain aspects of business, of, of um, uh, the trading side. I wasn't involved in the legal side. There's no marketing involved in commodity trading. 
Um, so I was dealing in Russia, I was dealing very much with physical sugar. So I was bringing in 20,000 um, tonne cargoes of sugar and, and, and distributing that around, around uh, Russia and, um, uh, and getting involved in the production process as well. But, um, but there's no, you know, sugar is sugar is sugar. There's no, there's no marketing involved in it. There's no brand involved in it. Um, so I had lots and lots to learn. And actually, an MBA was a great way of spending nine months coming up with lots of business ideas, bouncing them off lots of other people uh, in a risk-free environment, and also filling in some of the gaps in, in my knowledge. Not that, you know, an MBA doesn't really teach you how to run, how to run a business, but it tells you where the books are. So, and, and did you find you actually learned things from the, those around you? I mean, what, what were your cohort like? They were pretty good. Cranfield has a, a much older average age than a lot of other MBAs. So the average age was 32, and I was 32 at the time. So people who'd come in with quite a bit of experience, quite a lot of expats, had come in to sort of double declutch into another into another career. You know, it was sort of like a, a you know transition zone really when you come from sort of crazy expat world as I had. And uh, and then there were other people coming from a military career going into business. Um, there were people who'd been engineers all their lives who wanted to get into management. Um, so it was it was quite a rich range of experience there and just touching before we move on just touching on your time in russia then so presumably you lived in moscow predominantly yeah yeah and did you you mentioned a lot about um honesty and leading with decency and just open book um is that something you learned in russia dealing with russians did you find it like very different is there like a an attitude and all obviously i guess what i'm getting at <laughs> is the stereotype um but having not lived in russia it's very easy being in britain and listening to people's stereotypes and not actually knowing so hearing from someone on the inside what was your personal experience of dealing in russia uh, well i i certainly didn't get any any i, I didn't learn very much about uh, about honesty during my time there um <laughs> It was a very, it's very difficult um, Wild West type environment to work in, um, which was great fun. I mean, I was twenty three when I went out there, and it was um, suddenly as I arrived. I mean, I you know I'd just taken this job, and I'd, I'd been for a couple of months, and a column of tanks drove past in, into the centre of Moscow, and and, uh, and and then I turned on the radio and discovered that Gorbachev uh, had been arrested, and that was the end of the Soviet Union. Yeah, wow. So so there was and and then the, the centre of Moscow filled up with tanks and. People built barricades, and there was a revolution. So that was a was an interesting time because basically that's incredible. You literally what, lived through history. I lived I lived through communism turning into capitalism mm. um, overnight, pretty much. And so there was no such thing as a private company when I arrived there. Uh, you were only allowed to form a, a cooperative with member, and you could only employ members of your own family. Um, so th there was no such thing as a private company, no such thing as insurance company. Um, there were no private banks. Um, all of these things had to be built, um, and they had to be built on. Uh, in, in 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 time for these for, for business to, um, uh, to to grow, so everything was done incredibly quickly, and rules were, were invented, and laws were invented, and then and then un, uninvented um, uh, overnight. So you had no idea where you stood at all. So it was it was crazy. It was very exciting, um, um, but it was completely crazy. What was Mark Rich like as a boss then? Because obviously he's got a huge reputation as one of the pioneers of that industry, realistically. But uh, you know, a checkered reputation. A, as a slightly would. checkered reputation. He was um, he was he was a, a very very smart guy. He's going to report to him about every six months. Um, and I was he um, we did a buyout after about th three years after I got there in 1993. We did a buyout of Mark Rich. Um, uh, so um, so he then effectively the entire company left. And 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 uh, or bought the company from he left I suppose um, he was a, he was a fascinating character um, uh, very very shrewd um, and um, 
And I always, somehow, I always imagined that he had a white cat in his office, but I think I might have been mixing it up with, <laughs> with a James Bond film. But um, um, was he that type of character? Uh, he, but he, he, he very, he was very quiet, and he would, and you think he's not listening when you're talking to him, and then he just pick you up on something. So he was, um, he was, he was very sharp. But, but you know, he was his business was his entire life. That's all he focused on, and that's not necessarily something that I, you know, I admire in somebody. I think I think balance is important. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Well, actually, let's talk about that then. So moving on to uh, Moonpig, um, early days. So very, very early days, did you find that balance? Just starting there on that point, were you in the office all day, every day, thinking like it's all or nothing because you've thrown all your money in? Or did you consciously find time to make balance? I've always believed that it's much, much more about um, making the quality of the decisions that you take rather than the number of hours you put in. And the other... A rule I have is is don't do things that you could employ someone else to do. I was quite lucky that I'd I'd made a little bit of money in Russia, so I was able to put some cash in at the beginning. So I didn't have to do everything in, um, everything in the company. I could employ people to help me out. And a lot of founders make that mistake of thinking they're working hard. <clears throat> they're just not working very smart because they're doing lots of things they could be paying someone seven pounds an hour to do. Um, so um, so so if you, I always filtered it down to the things that only I could do. And actually, I didn't I didn't work ridiculous hours. Um, I thought very hard when I was at, at work, and I also liked people to leave at five, um, go off, do something else for the evening, come back refreshed in the morning, and don't burn out. 
inevitably there'd be the old period around Valentine's Day or Christmas when suddenly it was all hands on deck. And we quite enjoyed that whole sort of Stakhanovite um, attitude of, you know, oh, we've been, you know, working through the night. But it was then compensated for by taking time off elsewhere. So, <clears throat> so I've always, that sort of work-life balance has been quite important to, to me personally, but also in the companies that I, uh, that I work in. Okay. Um, was it during your MBA that you actually set up Moonpig? Like, did the idea come about whilst you were doing it? How did, how did that start off? Yeah, it was one of five ideas that I had. Um, what were the other four? Uh, okay, so one of, them was, one of them was teaching Japanese people to speak English using voice over internet protocol. Um, unfortunately, at the time, uh, which, was, uh, which was 1998, there just wasn't enough bandwidth to make that work. Because you've got loads and loads of teachers who would, you know, you imagine a teacher would go and visit a businessman for, for an hour's lesson. They have to drive for an hour to get there, drive for an hour to get back. It, it, it's you know Japan's an expensive place to to work in. So why, my, why why Japanese not Russian? Well, well, partly because partly because there's a the, well at that time there's a lot more demand for it, um, and um, they were willing to pay quite a lot of money for it. And then you've got um, a whole load of people based in San Francisco that were on pretty much the same time zone who could have who could have been working from home um, doing that. Anyway, the, the bandwidth wasn't there, yeah. and I'm sure it's being done now. But that was that. The other one was growing exotic mushrooms uh, of the non hallucinogenic type. Um, you know things like truffles, um, and there were some great biochemists in Russia. And I was going to, the idea was, you know, we'd, we'd crack the, the way of growing um, of growing truffles. Did you draw a pig north. on one side? You're like anything that could be done with a pig anything on this could, side exactly, and yeah. on this side, yeah. human. <laughs> quite right. The other one was running was running gyms in uh, in companies. So you know, you'd actually install a gym and run a gym within mm-hmm. a company. And, and then I realised very early on in my research that, that that people don't want their colleagues to see them sweat. Mm-hmm. Basically, yeah. I mean, that's you know. Did you do research to find that out? Was that just didn't basic? take long, actually? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, market research always very important. Uh, so then the the idea that came out of that was Moonpig, and and uh, uh, and that was a, it was a slight process of, de- of of deduction. I thought, well, I want to do something on the internet, and I went through the th- the different models that you could use on the internet. You know, selling digital cameras on the internet. Uh, I figured that somebody eventually would write an algorithm that would compare the price of yours with the price of someone else's, and they'd squeeze all the fun out of it. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is that. If, if, your, if your product is the same as the product in the shop, people are only going to buy it because they expect it to be cheaper. So margins are going to get squeezed. So I, I wanted to find something uh, where you could really add value. I also realized at that time, and even now, anything that you could download um, would have to be free. People expect it to be free for some bizarre, obscure reason. Mm-hmm. People expected content just to be given to them for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and we still haven't quite broken out of that, that mindset. Uh, so... Um, so it had to be something physical, but something that was better than the product in the shop. And the way of doing that was allowing a type of personalization that couldn't really be done in a shop type of environment. And so, um, so I thought of lots of different things you could personalize. One of them was doing personalized CDs. <laughs> really glad I didn't do that yeah. for all of us that are on Spotify. Um, you know, that wasn't going to last very long. And, um, uh, and then the other one was doing personalized greeting cards. And I used to buy greeting cards and tip X out the caption and write something much ruder. And it's one of those things that, that we... Um, we like to be rude to each other in England. I mean, it's just a bizarre, quirky trait. Um, so we send them an insulting card, and they stick it on their fridge. Um, so if you can make it even more powerful, that's brilliant. So I, so you combining those two things of the the internet effect essentially stripped all the administration out of how you would have done that before. So before you'd have gone to a print shop and said, I'd like to make a single personalized card. Um, here's the artwork. They'd make it up on a Mac, and then they'd print it. And the whole thing would cost 200 quid. Um, so no one ever did it. Mm. But the internet enables enables a, a consumer to go directly online and take all the time they like. But it's you know you're not paying for that time. They're sitting at their desk on their computer compiling the whatever they want to do with it, choosing the design and um, 
And, uh, and then the printing, of course, was done digitally, so that was got rid of the old litho technology. Um, so it suddenly enabled it to be possible to make a greeting card for a little more than the price of a normal card, but so much better. So just listening to the way that you rationalise all of your decisions that you had during your MBA, uh, it sounds very much like that MBA was really impactful and making you think longer term. So, for example, a lot of people would not spend the time thinking... Um, you know, eventually these margins will get squeezed or eventually this or that, you know, you get quite sucked into the concept of an idea and, you know, it's really interesting. Do you do like a full audit on every single idea, looking three or four years down the line, being super critical to your own ideas? And then what was it that that protected Moonpig from that in your mind? Well, I mean, it's like like a game of chess. You've got to think several moves ahead. And and that's before you start investing money, time and effort, and you get too too invested in, in in a single idea. Um, it's really important to think through, right, okay, what happens is if this is really successful? Where is this going to go? Um, and what are the things that are going to affect me? And where will this business end up? What will this business look like um, in 10, 15 years' time? Um, not that you're going to do your financial projections out that far, but, but you, you've got to work at, is this a business where margins are going to be squeezed? What are the competitive forces that are going to be? So that strategic thinking is quite important before you spend a penny on it. Because if you, just, if you come to the conclusion that actually it's, it's all, all very well now, but ultimately you're going to lose out, um, in, then, then just don't even start. So, um, so I've always done that, and it's, um, it's paid off. Did, did you have first mover advantage, or did you, were there other people um, around there you were able to lend ideas from? Well, kind of. I, I came up with the idea for Moonbig and entirely spontaneously, um, in the sense that I, you know, I hadn't seen it before. It wasn't a copy of an idea. But when I started doing my research... As inevitably, and I always suggest to people, write a business plan, and the first thing you've got to do is, is look at competition and work out how are people trying to solve this problem at the moment. Well, the other one um, is there's a great quote by Steve Blank, which is, no business plans ever survive first contact with customers, <laughs> yeah. which I love yeah. as well. So uh, it also changes. But, but, but interesting enough, I mean, the business plan that I came up with for Moonbig um, at, at the beginning has pretty much survived the test of time, which is interesting in that the... In the, the um, um, uh, but I know that, you know there were no direct competitors at the time, but there were you know other options. How do people solve the problem of birthday cards? They go to shops. Can we make it better? You know, and, and is anyone else doing it? And there was someone doing it. There was a guy in Cambridge doing it, and and I thought, oh dear, someone else is already doing it. So I went to go and see him and said, look, I've got two choices here. I could either invest in your business or I could start my own. Um, and anyway, he, he wanted way too much for an investment in his company, and and. Uh, and also, by that point, I'd realised that his content, his the greeting cards themselves, were really pretty lame. And so, what was your point of differentiation to his? Because you're just more, you're, you, you've got a sense of humour and a way of thinking. Was it more bringing that character to life? Uh, I think. I think what I what I understood was the power of the power of humour and the power of personalisation plus humour is a very very powerful thing. Mm. Happy birthday, John, um, is is not a particularly powerful thing. Uh, but on the other hand, when you can incorporate, weave someone's name into a joke that's very, very relevant to them, it's a winner. Mm. And 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 so the different the, the thing that I did differently is I thought, well, rather than trying me trying to write a whole load of greeting cards, um, why don't I just simply go to all the top greeting card publishers and offer to take the ones that they've already developed and already selling very well in the shops, and I take the ones that can be personalised and just license that. So that was the thing that I did that was very different. I mean, it's, 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 it's the interesting thing about that company Cambridge, is they, they never really got beyond about 50 grand turnover. Oh, really? Okay, so it does and show so that they, a, lot just, the, a lot in the execution rather the, the, than the, the idea. It was the execution, and predominantly it's about content. It's about really, really good greeting cards. Um, 
That's what people want. And you found and you found other people essentially to license their cards. So, so we most of the content initially came from existing greeting card companies. Um, so that enables to put probably a thousand, two thousand designs on the site. And then after a while, we started developing our own, particularly with things like the Spoof magazine front covers, where we came came up with Oi magazine, which was halfway between OK and Hello magazine. And when photo, I mean, bearing in mind when I started this, most people didn't have a digital camera. So, uh, so the idea of photo uploads, wasn't, mm. it wasn't even an option because um, people had to take a photograph, then scan it on their scanner, and then they had to scan it to 29 pixels by 92 pixels, and then upload. It was, it was a disaster. Um, so that came in much later. But once we started to, to personalize with photographs, suddenly it really opened up a whole load of, of, um, uh, of options that would never have existed in an unpersonalized um, sense. So then we developed a creative team. And so we, it was about, by the end of it, it was probably about 50-50, half created in-house and half um, licensed. There's a lot of people that talk about, um, you know, a name is nothing. But obviously for you, it, it's such a big part of your brand. You've got that audio-visual brand, as we alluded to earlier. Can you take us through, uh, obviously, a very well-documented story, but for those that don't know it, how Moonpig came about? How the name, well, the, the name came about because we spent... I, I decided I wanted to set the business up with a domain name that could be bought um, online you know, yep. that wasn't already booked. Um, I didn't want to, have to try and buy one, set up a brand, and then try and buy the domain name from somebody. Um, so I, I spent four days going through the internet, trying to find a variety of different things. And my rationale was I wanted something which was nothing to do with greeting cards. Um, it had to be as, as few syllables as possible. It had to be phonetic, and it had to be unique on Google. So if you, if you heard the name and you put it into Google, um, it, it would come up. Um, and, uh, and so the idea of combining two the juxtaposition of two things that are normally in juxtaposition, for example, blue dog, um, you know, everybody was doing that. So I went through the usual thing of you know, purple carrot, blah, 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 all that. And, stuff. and now but there are sites that do that for you, but you probably yeah. have to do it manually. Yeah, yeah, but that, yeah. That, that had all been booked up. And, and one of the great, to me, one of the greatest mistakes of the, of, of the internet uh, era was allowing domain names to be bought too cheaply. Because all that's happened is that millions, uh, tens of millions of decent domain names are just locked away and not commercially usable. Um, because somebody thinks at some point they're going to sell them for a million. Yeah. Um, so, so, I, so, I, so I spent four days putting things in and couldn't really get anything that worked. So we sort of had a bit of short, and every time we'd kind of reserve one. And, and then um, I, I put in Moonpig because it was, a, it was a nickname I had at school. Uh, it wasn't really something I planned to use, but <clears throat> it was available. And then I thought, okay, well, fair enough. It's moonpig.com. It's four syllables. It's incredibly difficult to misspell. And the other thing is that with a logo, a picture of a moon, a picture of a pig, moonpig.com, you cannot forget it. And so as a viral business, it's really important that you have something that can't be misspelled, uh, that is unique on Google. And uh, and originally, I had thought, when I got the nickname, I thought it was a character from the Clangers, but it, it actually wasn't. So I was Googling it, Googling it, trying to find, is there any reference to this anywhere else? And, and it was, it transpired. I eventually tracked down the, the guy at school who gave me the name, and I said, you know, where did it come from? And he said... Didn't just made it up, <laughs> um, but um, uh, but there was a bit of thinking behind behind the domain name. Had I had something like the online greeting card company dot co uk, um, if you put that into Google, you just come up with every greeting card yes. company. Rolls so, off the tongue though. Um, and uh, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. and the other one is we had a competitor called Remind for you. But then you know, you imagine trying to get that when you're TV advertising. That's fine, but actually on a, on a domain name, yeah. it's it's hopeless. And then they changed the name to, to to Funky Pigeon, and their own their own PR company misspelled the word pigeon in their press release. So stick to phonetic stuff. Have you met the people from Funky Pigeon before? Yeah, well, I met them before they became Funky Pigeon and before they went bust. 
there's an interesting story. I mean, they actually went, um, it was called Remind for You. Yeah. And and they went into administration. They got bought out by W.H. Smith and then, then renamed. I mean, essentially what they did is they bought it out and said, right, how can we make this company more like Moonbig? Yeah. So first of all, we need a, a funky, quirky, animal-based name. Um, and uh, then we need to change all the content. And I mean, it does scream of ripoff. Oh, it, it absolutely screamed a ripoff. But, but it's this kind of shameless. Uh, and then that's almost in a way... Fine. Do you know what I mean? At least it's so uh, obvious. We, we, that we, it's... we got slightly annoyed when they used to order every time we 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 had put a new range of cards up. They would order one of each one oh, <laughs> and so have it annoying. sent back to their office. Um, but at least they paid for them anyway. Um, so just last thing on that then. So you're anyone that I've said to you know tomorrow I'm going to interview the founder of Moonpig.com. Every single person has responded the same way, which is Moonpig.com. Yep. Everyone, like even my mum. Yeah. And I didn't know she could use a phone. So that's quite impressive. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, it really penetrates every single level of society and, and uh, you know, first impact and understanding of your, of your company, full stop. It's the thing that really resonates. So where did that come from? And if it wasn't you, should we just pretend it was? So you seem even more incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well it's, um, unfortunately, it wasn't, wasn't my idea. But what happened was that um, we had a, in fact, it was a, a small company, Remind For You, that had advertised on TV. And um, and I, I hadn't really thought of advertising on TV before. I thought that TV was was too high an entry ticket for us. Um, uh, but they advertised on TV, and I thought, well, that'll never work. But actually, we, we were measuring what they were doing in terms of sales simply by ordering a card from them every month and looking at the order number and deducting one from the other. Um, so so then we started ordering a card from them every day um, as they went through this, um, as, they, as they were on, on air. And so we were ironically in, doing the thing that annoyed you when they later did it as Funky uh, Pigeon to you. Well, yes, yeah. But, but so so so, um, uh, so we looked at them and thought, well, you know what? Actually, their cost of customer acquisition must be um, quite acceptable. So we thought, well, let's give it a go. And so we we um, uh, we hadn't got much money. We'd just broken even. We made about eighty thousand pounds profit. This was two thousand six, and we thought, well, okay. Well, and we this can... is six years after you started, correct? Yeah. Okay. yeah. So, so I worked out we could just about afford to make an ad, a pretty cheap ad, um, and, and spend about £50,000 on TV media to see if it would work. And I figured at that point, we'd already broken even and we were making money, so we weren't going to die. This wasn't, advertising on telly wasn't going to kill us if it didn't work. Um, so we did it. And um, something that I always recommend to people, if you can afford to test stuff, test it. And the earlier you test it, the better, because then it's a yes or no. And even if, even if it isn't cost effective, the information itself is very valuable. So, um, so we did that. And then the... The creative company said, "Well, look, no one's done a jingle recently, um, you know, because jingles come in and out. You know, everyone gets a bit annoyed with them after a while, so then people stop using them. Um, you know, now at the moment, there's lots of little plinky plonky ukulele mm. music that's just annoying everybody. But you know, it, 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 there are waves of things that come in, and no one had done a jingle for a while, um, uh, or a sonic ident, I think they're called. Um, so, um, so we did it. Fair enough. And the reason it cut through actually partly was because because we only spent thirty thousand pounds on the ad." When you have slick advert after slick advert after slick advert um, interspaced with with a fairly cheesy, but fairly yeah, cheap, it really sticks That's out. That's funny. So you spent a lot of money on raising awareness, and eventually, like you know, a lot on TV. So is yeah. that basically the your secret to success on a business like that? That once you've got your, you know, you mentioned after six years your uh, break even, <clears throat> just borderline profit. So once you've got your uh, business model and margins worked out on that side it's time to just double down and scale is that like your key pretty, learning pretty, there? pretty much um, the things that I look for are um, uh, long term gross margin you know where is, where is the gross margin going to be in the long in the medium and the long term um, and and then I look at the cost of customer acquisition and the 
I, I look at, at, at three-month value, six-month value of a customer, 12-month value. People talk about lifetime value of a, of a customer, but actually that's slightly irrelevant because what you, you need to work out, are you going to get your money back in six months or in 12 months on a customer? And um, so, I, so the critical thing was we'd spent several years, we'd got a lot of viral growth in Moonpig. That's how we'd managed to get to break even. So by the point that we started advertising on television, very, very few of our customer acquisition strategies had worked. But viral had taken us um, pretty much from zero up to about four or five hundred, uh, four or five hundred thousand customers, mm. um, and um, and so we were growing fairly constantly, about 30 40 percent, just purely because customers were getting customers. Were and you global that, at this point, by the mm, way? Were you global? Kind of. It's very much an English-speaking thing. So it was. We were in Australia, a little bit in America, but basically right. it was it was ninety percent British and eight percent Australian and two percent American. I mean, you know, you get people around all over the world, but in reality, it's mostly uh, English speaking. And um, um, so the critical thing for me was, was, was understanding exactly what our customers were doing over time. And because it's quite a high frequency purchase, uh, they'd come back six times a year. So we could model exactly what a customer was going to do uh, over, the next, um, uh, over the next year. And we also knew what they were going to, uh, going to do in terms of referring other customers. So we knew that if we recruited a customer, that customer would do uh, this in month one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. But also we knew the impact that they would have on customer uh, referrals as well. So we could model that in. So we built a fairly accurate model that said, if we spend this much money at this cost of customer acquisition, then this will be the net impact on the bottom line in 12 months time. And, and that was a, so it was, pretty, it was fairly mathematical. Hmm. I, I was putting these notes together yesterday. It was quite funny because I was in my kitchen and I had Radio 4 on and your MD came on, or the Moonpig MD, current Moonpig MD came on and was talking about Christmas cards, uh, which went out because this is going to be put later, so we're not talking about Christmas. But it, I found it really interesting that actually was doing some research for me. Was So we sell roughly 12 million cards a year, but only have a market share of 1.5%. Were you looking at the market, the total market size of this as well? Like because that, that that's what was was said yesterday. So I actually don't know uh, the the source of that. But presumably you had a much larger market share in the earlier days. Well, I mean, it depends which way you look at it. Because the market is there's around about a billion. The market's about about a billion a year in the UK, roughly speaking. Um, but a lot of that is value, um, you know, raw budget stuff. So uh, Christmas cards, for example, go down to about twenty p. We were never going to compete in that market. So if you look at if you segment the market and say that there are probably we probably in Britain probably spend two hundred million a year on uh, premium cards, which are, where someone is not that fussed about what they're paying. You know, three pounds, have to pay three pounds. They just want a really good card. That market is probably three, maybe two, two to three hundred million pounds, of which Moonbeam has about sixty million. 6 million, maybe 45 million, of cards alone, maybe 45 million. So, so actually, when you look at it like that, it's 5%. So it's, uh, so it's 5% of the premium market. And there's a lot of that stuff you can't replicate online. So if you want a card covered in fluff um, um, uh, or one with lights on, you know, we're not going to do that. So, it's, um, so that, you know, when it comes to analysing a market, it's, it's really important to analyse the market, that, the part of that market that you're actually competing in. Um, so um, there's, there's, there's probably room to grow, but... Um, well, the amazing thing is that Moonpig, when um, in two thousand by two thousand and ten, Moonpig probably had seventy five percent of the market, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's not far off that still. Well, I think what's interesting is as a consistent argument um, over digital to physical to digital again. Now, obviously, in your world, you're you're uploading everything digitally, doing it all digitally. 
getting something physical um, during this journey. And we've talked about this before, actually. Mm. There was JibJab. Um, and JibJab came out doing sort of digital, animated, very amusing, so very funny, very entertaining uh, online cards. Mm. Did you ever think about moving into that market? Did you ever think about, you know, the growth of online social media? Was there more value there? What's your kind of perspective on this digital sphere? Very early on, I took the view that um, uh, e-cards, as they were known then, um, were tricky in the sense that um, it was difficult to get people to pay for them. There's only one company that's ever really made money out of out of e-greetings, and that's Jackie Lawson, um, who bizarrely has an, an audience of of sort of quite middle-aged, it's quite a middle-aged audience and she does these lovely animations of Labradors bounding around the place. Um, and, and and people subscribe to this because that particular audience has no issue with subscribing for 20 quid a year uh, for these lovely, lovely cards. Most other people, goes back to my earlier point, people don't want to pay for content that can be downloaded. So they expect this stuff to be free. But there is, you know, if someone gives you a birthday present that they got for free, well, you know, kind of undermines it a bit, doesn't it? Mm. I, I actually love JibJab. I think JibJab did a really amusing job, and there's, there's a whole load of other, particularly at Christmas, um, for sending Christmas cards. But as a birthday card, you probably wouldn't do that. It never really took off in the UK, and it's never really taken off very successfully in, in the US as either. Um, do you think? Do you ever think about um, the future of the online greeting card? I don't even know if you even bother thinking about this area at all anymore yeah. or just elsewhere, but you know, got AI and VR and all these other things, you know, are we going to be in a world where your AI just automatically knows your personality and creates you the most humorous birthday card? And are you going to get to like a virtual reality great greeting card? Well, do you think we'll get well, to we, We've points? got a virtual reality, actually, maybe it's got a virtual reality greeting card, which is uh, uh, using um, uh, using Zapper. So yeah. you, you uh, it's augmented reality. So yeah. you point your, your iPhone at the card and it was quite clever. The, 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 the front of the card just comes to life. Um, that's very cool it, it is it, that, that is very cool so we're experimenting with things like that uh, say we you know Moonpig is uh, we, when I was there that we, we, that's what one of the last things I did okay. um, so but nothing quite replaces the human touch of the fact that I thought about I thought about you and I've picked something that's that, that, that sort of touches a nerve that it's relevant to you and it's we both find it's an in-joke. Mm. So you can't really replace it. You know, people would say, oh gosh, you could upload all of your friends' birthdays and automatically send them a birthday card, but you just suck all the sentiment out of that completely. Yep. No, I do agree. So we interviewed Graham Hobson from Photobox, who, um, you know, his company actually acquired Moonpig in 2011. Um, now, he told us a story about you approaching them a long time before. So just, just so you can have a little bit of pride here, he was kicking himself during the interview on this. But he did. He told us a story about you approaching him a long time before looking to sell but at a price that they thought was absolutely outrageously too high. But then it ended up being so much lower than what they actually paid for the company in the end. So, uh, you know, he said he's always had this sort of... Um, you know, joke with himself about understanding value and trajectory a bit better since yeah, then. Yeah. So what's your side to the story there? Um, well, we got, we were introduced very, very early on, actually, and we, we worked with them for a little bit. They, we produced all their Christmas cards for them. And we also did all of their, um, all of their uh, wedding, uh, the wedding invitations and various other things. The, the things that need to be printed on an in, on Indigo Press, which is what we had. Um, we also realized the massive difference with the, between our business and theirs in that, in that, um, uh, particularly with wedding photographs, there's quite a lot of black suits and morning coats and so on. If there's a slight white fleck missing, 
the customer will really, you know, the, the quality, because it's all about the photo, the quality is absolutely really, really important. Whereas on a greeting card, essentially, you can have, you know, you can have a, a little sort of colour mismatch. It doesn't make too much difference. The joke is still funny. Um, so we learned a lot about uh, about quality control. And, and Photobox are brilliant, uh, they're absolutely brilliant at quality control. So we got introduced in there and we kind of stayed in touch over, over the years. But as with all people like that, there's always that little bit of undercurrent of, you know, of, we'll buy you, you buy us. I mean, I actually don't remember... I don't remember whether or not um, uh, when we first started talking to them. But at the time that we, when they were first on the radar of companies that, that could be interesting, they were much smaller than we were mm. um, in terms of, not so much in terms of turnover, but in terms of profit. I mean, they weren't even, when they came on the list of possible contenders, I think, well, actually, you know, they, they, I think their CEO was quite a, kind of interested in doing a deal. But <clears throat> they did a lot of interesting acquisitions to get to their growth, right? And yeah, exa- exactly. So, so you know, obviously, Graham and Mark's company had been had been merged together with Photo Ways, and then they they took on Stan Laurent, who was the, the French CEO. Um, the problem with a with a with a merger is that is there's always that issue of well, who 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 steps out of the way? And actually, by the point I we we came to sell Moonbeam, I was very happy to step out of the way, which allowed Stan to come in as the, the joint CEO of, mm. of the two businesses, which worked brilliantly, and he did a great job. But so uh, yeah, I'm glad I kind of glad we waited a bit longer. So um, just final bit on Moonpig and then moving on. So you sold for reported 120 million pounds, um, and Graham's uh, long-lasting uh, thought there is you always did much better out of your exit than he ever did out of his. So <laughs> I think that says a lot as well about you know. To be fair to Mark and Graham, the thing that we learned interviewing them is you know they spent a long time. Um, just like you did in the early days, uh, not blow- not bloating too fast, not selling too much equity, making sure that they really got the fundamentals right. Do you think that's the kind of stuff that is missing a lot today in uh, a lot of the startups that you see is actually raising money too early, diluting too soon, and therefore when an exit comes about, you don't actually get the full value that you could have done? Um, I think there are a lot of people who... There are a lot of people who expect that they've had an idea and they expect someone to fund that, fund that and their salary from day one. And so this old-fashioned idea that you might go and get a job, learn something, um, save up, save up some cash, and, and fund yourself for the first, uh, for the first, at least until you've got something viable, um, has slightly gone out of the window. I, I had the money. I was very lucky that I'd made some money in Russia, and I had the money to get the website going and to get our first customer in through the door on my own cash. So when I went to an investor, it wasn't an idea on the back of an envelope. It's, um, it's you know, this is working. We have customers. Um, so that, that that obviously affected the valuation that I was able to get. Um, um, I, you know, if you've got the resources, the, the further you can take it down the line, the, the better. And the businesses that I had really, really admire, businesses like the White Company um, uh, and, uh, and 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 Charles Stewart Shirts, who who started from uh, from scratch, never raised a penny and turned them into massive businesses, and they still own one hundred percent of it. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not like it can't be done. Yes, um, and she needs the patience. Uh, they, they, they've, you know, husband and wife, they've, they've done their own businesses and they both did it from scratch, no investment. So those are the ones actually I, I admire a lot. Um, you know, it's easy in a sense, if, if you're persuasive and you can persuade someone to throw 50 million, uh, you know, of investment at a, at an, at a concept and just for land, go, go for land grabs, some of those will work and some of them won't. But I, but I pity the, the people whose the money belongs to, to some extent. I mean, you know, it, it's a, um, um, well, let, let, let's touch on that then. So you're, you're now you're now well known as an investor, of course. Mm. So I, you know you were probably already uh, previously well known as an angel investor before you were approached for Dragon's Den. But mm. um, how did that one come about? I think they were looking for new people to go on the, to go in the um, in the in the den, and they'd seen they'd seen a talk that I gave at at uh, the British Library about entrepreneurship, and uh, 
So I think they figured that that <clears throat> I, I was I was reasonably articulate and and I had a you know had, start, had founded a brand that people had heard of. So I think that's quite important also that 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 the audience needs to understand that there's um, that oh yeah he's the guy who did that and I know what that company does. Mm. So fair enough. I I accept that his opinion might be worth something. Um, so that was so they asked and I and it it hadn't occurred to me. I used to watch the show when it first started and really really enjoyed it and then kind of went stop watching it for a while but I, I, I figured it was um, sometimes the door opens and you just got to walk through it and see what happens um, and it was fascinating great fun making it uh, how much of it is um, you know exactly what you see on, on TV and then how much of it do you, do you ever watch it back and think well, that's not how it went at all and it's been edited unfairly and like, they've made me out to be X, Y and Z when actually you know that's it's not really how I remember that particular um, investment deal going they edit it down, so with each pitch we might spend an average of an hour and it gets edited down to down to 10 minutes. So you have to miss that stuff out. But actually they're missing out a lot of boring stuff. Right. So sometimes... So do you really go into proper detail on every single pitch? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we, we pretty much everyone who comes in front of us gets on the show. Um, and, uh, and obviously it's our money, it's real money. So, you know, you've got to, got to ask a few questions about the critical stuff, but all the financial grilling actually is a bit, if, if all that, if you had to listen to all of that, it'd be a bit dull. Um, so sometimes it can seem a little bit disjointed because you think, well, how do they arrive at that, how do they arrive at that decision mm. um, without asking uh, you know, about the profit or anything, but but actually we probably did, it's just it didn't didn't make the edit. How many of the deals that you, because obviously you, as part of the show, you have to agree to the deal if you if you say you're going to do it, how many fall apart afterwards because of due diligence? Uh, out of mine, I think I probably in the first series made seven offers and five went through. Um, one because the guy just just never got back in touch. I mean, I um, and and I'd slightly gone off the. We went off, spoke to him, gave him some advice, asked him for some figures um, so we could help him prepare the, a, a business plan, and uh, never heard from him. And I figured actually, you know what, it's your responsibility to get in touch with me. So 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 some of them just go on it because they want the publicity. Yes. Um, um, and fair enough, you know. Um, um, and sometimes they say things in the den that when you do the due diligence, so you say, do you have any competitors? No. And then they leave the den and you get on your phone and you look up and you think, well, I found nine in two minutes on Google. So, um, and think, oh. and um, so, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a little bit of sometimes it just doesn't stack up with what they said in the den. Sure. And when you do the co-investing, and this is, I think it's quite interesting being a, <coughs> a, a viewer, um, What's it like collaborating with other other angels, or rather, realistically, other dragons who you know throughout a few years come across as quite fearless and quite difficult? Um, who's the best person to collaborate? Is one question, and secondly, what is it like collaborating? That's probably not something you do too much of in that sense. Well, I've only actually collaborated with um, on two investments that have gone through, and they're both with Sarah Willingham, and we, we get on like a house on fire. So, okay, that's an so, easy so, easy one to answer. So, then. so sometimes that works quite well because we do both. We do both end up contributing, and 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 uh, uh, that's that's worked out worked out quite well. Having said that, I think well, my, in my my own investing uh, rules, and I you know over time you you develop your own angel investing rules. One of my rules now outside of the den is try not to be more than twenty percent of the money, um, because uh, then it means you're collaborate, collaborating with other people, but it also means that you're not the one who gets to kill the business. So if you decide you don't want to invest in the next round. Um, if you're all of the money and you're not prepared to put any more money in, you yeah, kill it. Absolutely. And you don't really be the one who kills kills someone's um, fledgling business. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to feel obliged to have to contribute in every in every follow on round thereafter. So, um, so, so I, 
I like to be in a position where if I don't want to participate in the next round because I don't have faith in it anymore, I can, I can, I can not do that. If the other four investors um, decide not to do it, then you know the CEO needs to understand it's really not worth investing in. Yeah. Um, so, um, so sometimes investing with, with being with other investors makes it easier to be able to say to a founder, look, you know, it's not me. I'm, I, you know, it, this just genuinely isn't going to work. You need to stop this now. Founders, as you probably know, I mean, you know, we we struggle to to, to, to see clearly sometimes. <laughs> yes, it's going to work. Yeah. It's definitely going to work, and they can be a little bit myopic about it. Um, so. Um, um, is it competitive in there? I mean, are you, are you friends off screen with all of them? Or is it like any relationship where actually, you know, some you resonate with, some you don't, won't ask you to name names. But like, what's, what's it like being the investor in that uh, environment? Because you, you see them argue all the time. <clears throat> Never really yeah, see I you think... argue, to be honest, but you do see everyone else argue. So. Um, well, we do, we, we do snap at each other occasionally, but it, it's actually quite a friendly, friendly in, it certainly has been for the two series that I've done. It's been It's been very friendly in the sense that we all stay in the same hotel when we're filming it, and we go out for dinner every evening. And and actually, it, it, the, the arguments. So a never, joke over who pays the bill. Are, um, no, usually most people are competing to pay the bill. Um, <laughs> um, but it's um, so we just take it in turns. But um, uh, what I what I found though is that uh, is that you know once once we finish filming, it's in, forget about it. We go back to go back to normal life until the next series. And, and um, no, we, we, between each other, we don't we don't sort of um, we we don't there, there were no squabbles that went beyond the studio okay um coming on to uh you know life outside of the camera then um i guess first question is uh have you have you actually noticed um that more people are familiar with you i know you have your hack of uh, having a beard or not having a beard but <laughs> does that work well i did i've had a beard on one show and without, without a beard on the other <laughs> I, you know, the old person the old person the, what can occasionally happen is people will say um uh are you famous I don't know how to answer that one. I mean, clearly not. Clearly not. <laughs> if you're asking the question, if you're asking the question, if you have to ask the question, I am not famous. I'm vaguely recognisable. Um, so, so no, I don't. So, so. Does, does that make you uncomfortable, or are you okay with it? I mean, it's not something well, it does, you have to it does, before, it does, it? No, but it doesn't actually happen very often. Um, okay. So, um, uh, you know, the, the thing is that the people who um, uh, I, I find, if people say, "What do I do? What do you do?" I, I I, I generally don't mention Dragons Den mostly because it, well, if they've seen the show, then they would know. Yes. If, they, if they if they if they haven't seen the show, and they, they would have no idea, sure. um, then it's just awkward. So, um, but actually, in reality, it's a very small part of what I do. So, yeah. um, so you know, it's only six weeks of the year, and then of course, following up with the investments. But so primarily, you know, when people say, "What do you do?" I, Invest, I would say, like, you know, invest in startups. So you uh, you seem to have a very sunny side up demeanor in general, and uh, I guess it's easier post success to be that way. But um, something we always like to ask our guests is about stress and actually dealing with life as a founder. Um, and you know, it's a very it can be very lonely at the top yeah. and very lonely during those decisions. Um, did you ever find that? Did you ever find those kind of uh, moments really challenging or? You know, can you reflect on some of like the the lows as well as the highs? You know, when people say, I've often asked, was there a you know ever a, a low moment during the creation? There was only really one moment. Unfortunately, it lasted from about two thousand to about two thousand and five. But it was um, uh, it, it was you know, there's that period when you're when you're losing money and the business plan is not going according to plan, and it can it it can be tough. Having said that, I think it's a bit like roller coasters. Some people like roller coasters and they like being scared and they find it exhilarating, and other people don't like them, and when I think back to some of the most exciting times I had, when the adrenaline was really rushing, um, it was because we had to fight very, very hard um, and, and and make things work. Um, 
So there were certainly moments when I would have gladly handed the business over. You know, someone had said, look, we, you know, we can make this all go away as if you haven't, and we'll give you your money back as if this never happened. Um, I, I would have, unfortunately, no one ever made that offer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just had to kind of push on through. I never got too stressed about it. The only stressful things that I find, the most stressful things in businesses are um, this personal acrimony. You know, if you, if you have a falling out with a, with a fellow, with a co-founder, or an investor. Did you um, have a co-founder? Um, no, I didn't. And, and, and actually, I'm quite glad I didn't in some respects. Um, I'm always amazed by people who don't have co-founders. I mean, I just think it's an absolutely incredible quality. Borderline completely mental, but I guess you don't know, you don't know what you're well, missing. Well, the, 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 great, the great thing about being... Well, if you know, if three, three guys, you know, post-university, go for a drink and someone comes up with an idea and you get chatting about it, hey, why don't we all just do that? And then, you know, you, you've given away 66% of your equity on day one. Absolutely. And, and the problem is after a little bit of investment, you're both then down to 5 or 10%. And, and, and you think, well, is this really worth flogging myself for for the next few years? So it, it allowed me to have some clarity of vision starting it entirely myself. I had a bit of money. Um, and I had a really, it wasn't, I hadn't totally dismissed the idea of having co-founders. Um, um, in fact, at the very, very beginning, when I was discussing business ideas, as a, I was with a bunch of mates and we were talking about different things and, 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 and different ideas. They came up with a couple of ideas and I pitched and I threw that one into the hat and said, does anyone fancy doing that with me? And, um, and they didn't. Um, so, um, so I did it my, by myself and they went off and did something else. Um, they must be delighted with their decision. <laughs> but, but it was, it was um, it, it's sometimes easier in some respects being myself. And, you, and I replaced the co-founder thing with some of my non-exec directors who were investor directors and I always make a big difference between non-exec directors who represent shareholders interests and investor directors who mm. put a bit of cash in and are on the board and to, to, to monitor their own investment um, because they were all entrepreneurs and they all gave me a bit of a um, they gave me the, I, I was able to talk to them about the problems of the business that I, in a way that I couldn't talk about with the staff yep. you, know, you can't you know when people say to you, oh, you're looking a bit down, what's the problem? I can't pay your salary at the end of the month. Um, it, it just doesn't go down well. So so that's where the loneliness comes from. But if you've got a good board, and also there's quite, I think the entrepreneurial community in, in Britain is pretty supportive. Um, people have always got the time to to um, uh, to give back, you know, got the time to go for a cup of coffee and just a general bitch and wine, you know, which is, yeah, which is very useful. Um, so did you have a mentor along the way or anyone like that that really helped you? Well, yeah, some of my non-exec directors were very, very helpful. I had okay. five altogether, um, and and they were all very helpful sounding boards. And every single one of my non-execs came up with one thing that probably saved the business, which is interesting. I mean, they came up with a lot of crap as well. Yeah, but, sure. But, but as they do, but sifting through that, there's the odd gem, you know, where uh, where you realise that actually. So one guy, for example, suggested when we first started, the price was one ninety nine, and I figured that one ninety nine was the right price, the same price as the card in the shop, but it's better. Right. And I was stuck on this idea. Anyway, we're hemorrhaging cash, and he said, "Look, we're going to go under. So we could try just putting the price up to two ninety nine. This was in the first year of business. Why don't we just put the price up to two ninety nine? Because the, the impact on the gross margin will be enormous. Um, and if 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 the buyers customers don't like it, we'll we'll go well, under. No. But yeah. we're going to go under anyway." So we did. We put the price up from one ninety nine to two ninety nine, tripled our gross margin, um, or contribution per card, and not a flicker from the customers. Didn't even miss a beat. And the interesting thing was that we had then set the market. That was so early on that we then set the price mm-hmm. of the market in the UK at two pounds ninety nine. In Holland, um, a company started out uh, doing exactly what we were doing, but they set the price at one euro ninety nine. And they kept it at one euro ninety nine for so long that everyone else set their price at one euro ninety nine, and they set their market there. 
it became very, very a very popular product in, in Holland, but no one has ever made money out of it. Yeah. So setting the price, you know, but I wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have done that if David uh, Noble hadn't suggested putting the price up. So, and then there were various other things that other people did. You know, one person managed to, one non-exec director managed to bring in a, a major investor at a fairly critical time when um, we otherwise would have gone under. Um, so it's like those little combination of magic moments. It's also who you choose to participate in your business and give you advice and how they then want to help you yeah. when the chips are down. So that's it, actually just such a huge part of it. But, but, the, but the, the difference between a, you know, an investor director has, has skin in the game, but you haven't sort of given equity away on day one. And the, the, the difficulty with, with being a co-founder is that if you've got three people in the business who've got 33% of a, of a, of a company, if one of them decides to sort of hold back a bit or just is not as productive as the others, there's never going to be a point where all three of you think we are all contributing equally 33% to the, to the success of this business. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, that's, and, and that fallout can be catastrophic at a later stage when, you know, when the person who really came up with the idea and is really driving the business thinks, well, I've only got a third of this, so is this really worth it? Yeah putting the effort in. So as someone who's um, spent time then learning from others along the journey, and obviously you're so invested now as mm. a person in other businesses, can you tell us a little bit about some of the companies that you've invested in? What, what do they do? What's, what's interesting about them? What allures you towards them? Uh, my, my first ever investment, um, when, when Moonpig started making money, which was back in 2008, um, and it was August 2008, I remember very vividly because I bought a pay-by-the-hour car company out of administration um, two weeks before uh, the global financial yeah. crisis. <laughs> so uh, all of the leasing facilities suddenly dried up and I ended up with this fleet of cars in the north of England. Uh, and I love the concept. and I think uh, pay-by-the-hour cars, as has been proved, will be a, a wonderful contribution to society. Uh, but actually, I also learned that you have to have an awful lot of tin on the ground um, to make any money, and that was incredibly difficult. And I ended up selling that for a fraction of what I'd invested in it about a year later. Sold as a going concern. And in fact, now it's part of Enterprise Cars, and they're all over the place. Um, I don't know if they're making money yet. But I learned quite a lot of lessons about, about investing uh, from that. Your, your timing is impeccable with starting businesses and investing. Um, well, I mean, it, it, it's, um, you know, sometimes you catch a wave and sometimes you miss yeah. a wave. And with that one, I missed, I missed a wave. Had I... Um, you know, I look at it and think, if I'd stayed in, if I'd had the, you know, if I'd stayed in, would, would, would I have carried on and caught that wave eventually? But, you know, then again, that is now eight years later. And I don't know if I could have sustained the losses over eight years. Do you kick yourself with any of this stuff? Do you, you know, or do you just like cut your losses and go, well, you know what? I, it wasn't my time this time. I, not everything's going to work. And, and um, you know, things should affect, will, will only affect you as much as you allow them to affect you. So you have to be rather philosophical about, about success and failure. Um, because it doesn't change the end result. I mean, if the thing failed, it failed. Yeah. Um, but you can change the way you think about it. And do you have a strategy for what you invest in and how? You, you alluded uh, to it earlier, but you didn't really go into any detail. So. I, I'd like to think of it. I, I haven't had... Of course, you know, Dragon's Den, you end up with no strategy at all because, yeah. because you've got a wide variety of things that I'm just interested in. I'm interested in the food sector, uh, for example. You think, how on earth does this stuff arrive on my supermarket shelf? And um, and I'm, I'm interested in the structure of other of, of other industries. Um, mm. So, you know, if I come up with a perfectly decent soup, um, what's what's to stop me going into Tesco's and being able to sell it in Tesco's? And understanding that process is quite interesting. What most of us don't understand is that the buyer for Tesco's is confronted every morning with twenty people who've got a perfectly palatable soup, uh, but he can only pick one. So, um, uh, it you know, not everyone can win in in, in that game. Um, I, I'd like to focus now on educational technology because I've got a couple of ed, of ed tech businesses that I'm involved in, 
now. And I think it sort of combines my two, the two sides of my life, the more sort of philanthropic side, where I've been involved in education in the developing world, uh, with um, with technology, which I think is going to have, um, on a purely commercial basis, will have an enormous influence on how um, uh, how people are taught, um, and particularly in the developing world, because it can be done very cost effectively. Um, and we, we, you know, we, we, we can fast forward the, the education of a lot of very poor children um, through the use of great technology. Um, so um, so that, that's probably more of my focus now. Okay. Um, just uh, to wrap it up, what is the best piece of advice that you think you've been given along your journey? The, the best piece of advice is, is, you, is um, that you need to be decisive. Because... What I learned when I was doing my MBA was that there were lots of people who were far brighter than me who could come up with um, six different options in a PowerPoint presentation and uh, present that beautifully. But actually, at some point, someone has to say, we're going to go with option A, even though we don't have all the information. And the more decisions you can take, the, the faster your business moves forward. Um, so it, it's, it's um, you know, don't be reckless, but at the same time, don't overanalyze. So that's the best piece of advice you've ever been given and therefore probably the advice that you would share on? I'd share that advice. The 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 uh, the other bit of advice I would give is um, uh, is that it isn't about how hard you work; it's about how clever you work, and never do anything you could pay pay someone else to do. So work smart, not hard. Yeah, or both, ideally. But. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and final question: What's next? Is it more investing? Do you have any other ideas like, in the fire? I think I probably want to focus more on educational technology and um, and and probably have fewer but larger stakes i don't want to spread myself too thinly okay well so just having more meaningful relationships inside the businesses that you're investing in yeah yeah well that was a pretty awesome way to end a first week on the podcast with an amazing first guest nick jenkins founder of Moonpig, who shared a lot of insights about how he started his career in russia uh then did an mba failed a business obviously the famous shirt collar story um, but he learned a lot along the way and actually became a sole founder, uh, eventually exiting Moonpig for over £150 million. So quite an incredible journey and very kind of him to share some of the lessons on the way. So recapping on a bit of the advice as a founder, never ever do any work you can pay someone else a basic wage to do. And here's number one piece of advice, which is be decisive. So lots of actionable information based on his story. And uh, we've got next week an amazing guest as well lined up that Rich can tell you all about. So yeah, great interview with Nick just then. And uh, hopefully next week will be just as good. We've got Alice Bentink, who's the co-founder of Entrepreneur First, one of the UK's uh, leading startup incubators. And we're super excited to have her coming on the show because she has probably seen more pitches than... Uh, most VCs in the last uh, couple of years and um, has even had a, a quite a large acquisition of one of her companies last year, Magic Pony, who reportedly sold to Twitter for about $150 million. So if you're a startup founder or somebody just wanting to learn a bit more about incubator funding, then the next episode will be great for you uh, because she goes into a lot of the do's and don'ts about pitching and also a bit of background about why she started Entrepreneur First as well. So you can subscribe to The Secret Lives of Leaders on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Google Play and on YouTube. Uh, If you'd like to get in touch with us, give us some feedback. We always like hearing from you. You can email us at hello at secretleaders.com. And all of our shows are recorded and put online and you can find them at www.secretleaders.com.
Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Me again, Dan from 2022. As promised, I've put recommendations for other episodes to listen in the show notes or just binge from here. That would also make me very happy. I hope these conversations help you take your career and maybe even your life to the next level. You can find me on social on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram at Dan Murray Serta. See you there.